Welcome to the Gray Zone on Pacifica Radio. It's Max Blumenthal, your host. This December 23rd, as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky prepared to address a nationally televised session of Congress and to appeal for more than the $45 billion already allocated to fund his proxy war with Russia in 2023, I intercepted a Ukrainian diaspora delegation on their way into the capital to attend Zelensky's speech and serve as his personal cheering section. I challenged the delegates on camera about their demand for tens of billions more from U.S. taxpayers for a proxy war that could escalate into a direct nuclear conflict. I also challenged them on their opposition to an immediately negotiated settlement and on the plague of neo-Nazism in Ukraine. As the exchange unfolded, one woman appointed herself as the group's de facto spokesperson. She happened to be Natalie Juresko, the former finance minister of Ukraine's post-Maidan junta government who had presided over several crushing austerity packages, handing public assets over to the IMF, while average Ukrainians suffered poverty or were turned to migrants. Juresko also served as director of the unelected U.S. board, which has helped place Puerto Rico's debt in the hands of Wall Street. I spoke with RT about the exchange. Take a listen. During Zelensky's visit, he addressed Congress and, well, he took, of course, the time to express gratitude for all the weapons already provided, but then he asked for more. And after the meeting, it was agreed that the U.S. Patriot missile system would soon be delivered to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Max Blumenthal, editor of the uh, Gray Zone investigative journalism site, has posted on Twitter his exchanges with delegates representing the Ukrainian diaspora as they made their way to the U.S. Congress. Is $45 billion not enough? Nope. Not enough? How much... How much more should we give to Ukraine instead of our own people? Um, do you do you, do you support the Azov Battalion? Okay. There's no more of an Azov Battalion. There's no more All Azov? All the battalions were, were trained and recruited back into a formal professional army over the last eight years. So the neo-Nazis were brought into the army? No, there are no neo-Nazis There's in the none? army. So no answer about if Ukraine is a democracy, why did Zelensky ban 13 opposition parties? It's martial law. Read the definition That's, of martial law. Sounds undemocratic. Why did he ban the Russian wing of the Orthodox Church? The Russian Orthodox Church was serving as a treasonous organization and was 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 found with materials that were illegal and financing the, the enemy. Uh, war against innocent people. I oppose the assault on Donetsk. Do you? The shelling of the people of Donetsk. Do you oppose that? You know. No. Are you why are, why are civilians being killed in Donetsk and Lugansk? Do you oppose that? All right, let's learn more. Crossing live now to the man himself, Mr. Max Blumenthal himself from the Grey Zone, who was, uh, who was, well, shooting that video. Max, a very warm welcome to you. Great to see you here on RT International. Love your work. I'm a big, big fan. How did you know Thank you. these people were coming? And, and, and who exactly were those people that you got so uncomfortably on camera? Well, I didn't know they were coming. I didn't know who was coming. I just showed up at the Capitol. I was actually hoping to be the one reporter who actually asked critical questions of our representatives here in the U.S. on why they were going to authorize another $45 billion to continue this dangerous proxy war throughout 2023. And what I found was a completely locked down Capitol. It looked like the days after January 6th, except the fences were lower. There were no members of Congress, although I did catch a lost Senator Joe Manchin who basically refused to speak to me. But there was a small anti-war protest on East Capitol, right at the front of the Capitol. And as I was 
standing there, a Ukrainian diaspora delegation just rolled up, started taking pictures, and I began questioning them. And you saw the exchange right there. I think it was very revealing. And these were actually significant figures, um, not only in the diaspora, but within the Ukrainian government itself. But did you expect the reaction, Max? Did you expect the reaction you received from them? And, and, and can I ask you as well if there was anything that surprised you the most? Well, it was a typical reaction. I mean, the hypocrisy of that we also hear from U.S. lawmakers about fighting for democracy and then justifying all of these ruthlessly undemocratic and authoritarian measures that are also criticized in Russia, shutting down opposition media, shutting down opposition parties. Um, I mean, we've even seen assassinations of mayors in Ukraine and uh, justifying that because, hey, we're at war. And uh, that was extraordinarily revealing, along with the justification of the, the proposed ban on the Russian wing of the Orthodox Church. We're already seeing clergy being arrested. And this is, this is stuff that never gets out in U.S. media. So I thought it was worth using this opportunity as a platform. Well, there are so many things, as you say, Max, that well, either neglected or quite conveniently brushed under the rug when it comes to certain reports in the Western mainstream media. If it doesn't fit the narrative, it's just not going to be published or publicized. Max, I wanted to ask you, Zelensky goes to Washington. It's a big trip, fanfare, pomp and circumstance, a bit of the red carpet. You know, he gets a roaring applause from those in attendance for his speech. But then they say, we're going to give you 45 bill. We'll throw in the Patriot missile defense systems as well. And Zelensky's like, well, you know what, guys, it's just not enough. Um, how was that accepted as a reaction from Zelensky? Do you think there were any people apart from Tucker Carlson who may have resented him with his cap in hand saying, whatever you're giving me, it's still not enough? Well, the State Department, and I'm sure there were some conversations with the people who control Joe Biden about that. And essentially, the $45 billion is going to come right back here into the suburbs of Washington, D.C. to pay for McMansions for Lockheed Martin and Raytheon executives, the Patriot Battery. I mean, they're happy to give them that. It won't do anything. But, you know, it's a kickback scheme for the donors to the members of Congress who are clapping like at SeaWorld for Zelensky. Um, and you can just see, even in this crowd of uh, Ukrainians going into the capital, the, uh, the, 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 the role of Ukraine as kind of an American vassal. When I, the woman that you heard sniping back at me was Natalie Juresko, who actually was an advisor to the post-Maidan junta government. She was given uh, Ukrainian citizenship the same way uh, Mikhail Saakashvili was, just to help the U.S. control that government. And now she's back here to cheer for Zelensky. She also spent some time privatizing Puerto Rico's economy on the PROMESA board. So that's who these people are. There's a lot of corruption there. And Zelensky is going a little too far for them, I think. And there are dark forces lurking behind him who are waiting for him to slip up. We should remember the tale of, of Diem, the South Vietnamese puppet coming to Washington to beg for more weapons. What happened to him? Well, he was toppled in a U.S.-directed coup and assassinated. So uncomfortable conversations behind all of the applause. Yeah, as you say, Max, indeed. But it's, you know, look, I'm a big fan of your work. You keep on lifting the lid on a lot of a very sensitive, touchy subjects around the world today, a lot of it to do with geopolitics and the Western hegemon. And so, I mean, I really enjoy your work. You talk about dark forces lurking behind Zelensky. I wanted to ask you about this. You know, Zelensky, he comes to Washington. The conflict's been going on since the end of February now in Ukraine. Billions and billions. In fact, 
As I understand, the amount of money sent from the West into Ukraine has already exceeded the annual military defense budget for the biggest country in the world, that of Russia. So it really gives you an idea of how certain Western professional partners are dedicated to push this into a really long, protracted war. But um, Max, if I could give you the opportunity to address the average American who might be watching this discussion right now, what does the average American need to understand about the current conflict in Ukraine and what the future might hold? Well, the average American probably can't watch this conversation. I live here in Ward 8 in Washington, D.C. It's a majority black area, the poorest district in Washington, D.C. And actually, many of my neighbors used to watch RT on their cable channels and really enjoyed it until it was cut off. So they can't watch it. The corporate media won't show this to them. No one's really speaking for them. The railroad strike was just broken. Uh, Overaccumulation of the economy is taking place. Inflation is running out of control. The interest rates keep going up. And uh, people are really suffering. And when I talk to average people, construction workers, taxi drivers, my neighbors here in Ward 8, they're disgusted with the amount of aid that's going to Ukraine. But they have no one, literally no one, to speak for them in Congress. As on the Democratic side, and this is a Democratic city, there's there's no one who doesn't support this war. We saw Barbara Lee, who was the lone vote against the AUMF to declare permanent war starting in Afghanistan back in 2001, wearing blue and yellow Ukraine flag colors. So she's totally flipped. Who are the only two people to actually speak for the American majority? It was far-right legislators demonized in corporate media, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, who did not stand for Zelensky and studiously ignored his appeals for more billions. That's how most Americans feel. They're not that interested in this. They don't know why their money is going there. And they've lost faith in a political system that doesn't speak for them. And it's, it's, so it's a real tragedy from where I stand. All right, Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, investigative journalism site. I really appreciate your work, Max. This November, I traveled to Lisbon, Portugal to speak alongside my colleague at the Gray Zone, Aaron Mate, at the Web Summit, the world's largest gathering of the tech industry. But we were disinvited almost hours before the conference began. We soon learned that we had been removed from the speaker's schedule on personal orders from Olena Zelenska, the wife of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who had been invited to make a surprise visit at the conference in Lisbon. While in the country, Zelenska appealed for more billions for her proxy war against Russia. Then she moved on to Paris, where a luxury shopkeeper told local media that she engaged in a $40,000 shopping spree in the course of an hour. What you're about to hear is a portion of my discussion of the Web Summit affair with Clayton Morse, a Portugal-based independent journalist and host of Redacted. I was joined by Wyatt Reed, a journalist and friend of the Gray Zone, who discussed his reporting trip to the independent eastern Donbass republics, where he was shelled by U.S.-armed Ukrainian forces and documented atrocities by the Ukrainian military. Take a listen. Well, it's an honor to have you guys here, and I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, we often reference your work here on this show. Uh, our audience knows that we hold you, you guys in great esteem. And so it's a, it's a real honor to have you here. And so I was really disheartened. I was really bothered by this news this week. So I want to start there and we'll have a wider ranging discussion about independent journalism. Um, 
what happened at Web Summit? So the Gray Zone was invited to come to Lisbon, Portugal to, to be a part of Web Summit. Uh, just take me through what happened. Well, I had no idea what Web Summit was before we were invited, Aaron Mate and myself, to Collision, which is a smaller version of it in Toronto. And there we did a 15-minute kind of panel where we presented mainstream media as the greatest source of disinformation on the planet. It was a great clip, by the way. We, we featured it here on the show. I've tweeted about it. And it was like all of the mainstream media people that are sitting in that room when you guys literally destroy them. It was, it was a thing of beauty. It really was. Yeah. So people loved it. And it was very satisfying for me to have all these mainstream hacks in the front row just nodding their heads and just like going practically having seizures while I spoke. Uh, but that clip and the video of us from Collision got 1,000 times more engagement than anything else from there. And so we were invited back to Web Summit, which is the major summit, 70,000 people from the tech industry descending on Lisbon. They call it Davos for Geeks or whatever. It's obviously, you know, the, you have to be there if you are in big tech. And so this con conference was sponsored by Amazon, Microsoft, all these big wigs, the Portuguese government and the Ukrainian government and lots of Ukrainian techies were there as well. Uh, the campaign began to build through the usual um, NATO related channels of the Atlantic Council, the NATO's unofficial think tank in Washington, Bellingcat, which is connected to the Atlantic Council funded by the CIA spinoff, the National Endowment for Democracy and, and so on. That's what you saw in public, in private, and I learned this several days ago, the Ukrainian first lady, the wife of Vladimir Zelensky, NATO's favorite welfare queen, Olena Zelenska, personally lobbied for our disinvitation. And that means that she was threatening major commercial interests, saying that they would pull out from this conference unless they disinvited us. Like sponsors that were like, that were a part of it. So she was going to go. They were going to go after sponsors that had funded Web Summit. One source close to the internal discussions of Web Summit organizers told us she threatened to pull the tablecloth off the table and break everything in the process. And so you have Patty Cosgrave. He's a significant figure in Ireland. He's sort of a anarchist minded, you know, inspired by Julian Assange, but also he's the CEO of this major tech conference. Um, and he has all his employees to pay, all these commercial interests to mind. And he's a great, you know, obviously a Gray Zone fan because he invited us. So he chose to continue paying his employees and people and not have his conference be completely wrecked by this government, which is a channel for billions and billions of dollars, not only of, of military industrial complex money, but also tech money. And then as soon as we were bounced from the conference, you could see Microsoft Inc. a $100 million deal with the Ukrainian government. For what? Tech support for their war, for yeah. NATO's proxy war. I mean, this is a high-tech war. Drones, all of that stuff requires tech support. And Microsoft has long been supporting, uh, for example, the Israeli military in its illegal occupation of Palestine. They're all of the Amazon, I mean, they host the CIA's cloud. They have a $600 right. million deal to host the cloud of the CIA. That's where the money's coming from for these companies. So we were in the way because we were going to spend 15 minutes explaining what a disaster for European economies this war is and for the people of Russia and Ukraine and the Donbass where, where why it just was, what a human catastrophe this was. And they could not have that 
So at the highest level, and I was mocked for saying this when we were disinvited, I said powerful forces have lobbied uh, to remove us from this conference. People tried mocking me as though um, it was just the conference organizers decided that we were conspiracy theorists after thoroughly enjoying our content and agreeing with all of it <laughs> and deciding to invite us not once, but twice. And now we can see who's behind it. So what specifically, I mean, you can talk about the sourcing there or not, but Zelenska, do you know more details about what she might have said and uh, in some of the threats specifically about pulling out? Because she she did come then to the conference, right? So she was yeah. walking. I think I saw pictures of her walking through through the conference and looking at different companies and shaking hands and yeah. everyone was sort of fawning over her. Yeah. It, uh, people who went to her speech described it to me as a corporate elevator pitch. I mean, she's just asking for for money, support, basically more corporate welfare for their war effort military industrial tech welfare for their war effort. But she, I was told specifically said that she, she would denounce the entire conference. And if she did that, then the conference would be seen by these major corporate commercial interests, big tech as a forum for quote unquote, Russian propaganda. And in Europe right now, I mean, we're in Portugal, RT is banned here. Like all Russian media is banned. That would have been, you know, the kiss of death. The conference would have unfolded and it would have been a disaster for its chief executive, Patty Cosgrave, uh, who's kind of like uh, being demonized in the same way that Elon Musk is. He's seen as a, a disruptor. So, yeah, they had to get rid of us. And there's a hilarious aspect to this, which is that every year um, the headline speaker, Zelensko, is coming in by surprise. Um, the headline speaker hits a red button in a ceremonial gesture launching the Web Summit. She demanded that there be no web button because of the fear of being memed because it looks so much like a nuclear button and everyone was just going to be. I mean, to have that awareness, like, OK, we're going to hit this button and that's how we launch Web Summit. No, it could be understood. So they're very aware of just the 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 the, the presentation. Right. It's like the the th I should say the theater of it all. Right. And why you just returned from the Donbass. Are they are they aware of that there? I mean, the sort of the theater of this war, when you talk to real people who have been affected by by this, by the constant shelling over the past eight years, do, do they are they aware of this theater that takes place in the Western world? People don't really know what's happening. They don't understand it, especially depending on where you are in the Donbass. I mean, I went to villages near the front where People don't have cell phone service. Their news comes via newspaper that arrives once every few days, if they're lucky. Um, <clears throat> people are in a war zone, you right. know. They're not paying attention to all of this. And, and in the West, I mean, this is kind of almost the main trajectory of, of the, the battle. It's, it's, it's being fought on the newspapers and the front pages on TV. It's not, you know, that's the main kind of weapon that Zelensky and company have is propaganda, which is why they were so, I think, frightened by the possibility of being confronted and having that monopoly over the information sphere challenged, even by, you know, Max and Aaron, who don't have a huge mainstream presence. Um, but I think people knew that this would would give them some and, and they would have to basically uh, legitimize this perspective that's not Russian propaganda. This is a real thing that people feel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was, to me, it's, they've had this control over the information space for so long. They've 
totally dependent on it. They've had it in Ukraine for since 2014, since the U.S.-backed Maidan coup. They've had just this total monopoly over what people can and can't think. Um, and now they're exporting that to the rest of Europe. And now they're, you know, that has become the, their domain too. Um, and it's kind of depressing to see so many political leaders just fold. There's no real political leadership in Europe or in the U.S. anymore for that matter. Nobody to really stand up for the interests of any of these countries. Um, and, you know, it's not surprising to me that so many people in the Donbass see this. They see this. Um, what the West is to them, what it has become, and not surprising to me that basically everyone I talk to on the uh, Russian sympathizing side of the front um, expressed basically desire to be a part of Russia. They expressed hatred and contempt for mm -hmm. the Ukrainian regime. They described them frequently as fascists, as beasts, as people who just want to kill us because that's their only real interaction with them for the past eight, almost nine years is just being on the receiving end of artillery shells. That was my first physical interaction with um, Zelensky and, and his government was basically within two hours of getting to Donetsk. My hotel is shelled by, a, by artillery, by, a, I believe, a 155 millimeter artillery shell. It's a NATO standard shell, either coming from a French or a British howitzer um so that is the, i got immediately just a small taste of what it's like to live there you know just watched my hotel being hit about 100 meters away from me i just huge just saw this huge firework kind of explode in front of me and that was you know i was told out afterwards by some of the other people who survived you know were kind of relaxing afterwards having a drink in this blown up hotel bar and uh they said, well, that was your baptism by fire. You survived. Congratulations. Welcome to Donetsk. And I saw that on Twitter a short time afterwards, some Western politicians, I think it was Western politicians saying, well, I wish you would have been there a minute earlier. Like that's what American politicians think about journalists who are going there and covering the truth that they wished that you would have been in that bomb blast. Yeah, that was Dr. Vanessa Enoch. She is a Democratic congressional candidate um, in Ohio. So this is not some fringe view. This is somebody who is actively participating in a high level of U.S. politics. And this is the level that she's on and the level that we are at now in terms of the discourse, the, the, the public conversation. It's just if you're in somehow affiliated with Russia and because I work for Sputnik News, because it's one of the only news outlets that lets me cover the things that I want to cover, um, now I'm basically seen as a legitimate target to just be murdered. And there has been no denunciation of this, right? Right. The, nobody has, has said, hey, maybe this woman who's running for Congress, should I apologize? She just deleted the tweet. That's it. They want to bury it up. You know, nobody's talking about that. Um, we're disgusting. Just, yeah, we're just in this new world where anything is acceptable. And yeah, it's just full on information war and the veneer of democracy is gone. So as the founder and, you know, running daily, the, the gray zone. How do you deal with this? I mean, what when you were going to speak at Web Summit, for instance, did you have to then submit? Did they ask you to sort of submit a panel topic, what you were going to speak about for approval before you did? Do they do you have a much 
tighter leash because you are the gray zone, you're independent. If it, you know, if it's somebody from CNN, they're not going to do this, right? They're not going to have any, they're not going to probably have a pre-approval about it. It'll be, you know, be garbage. It'll be a garbage panel, a waste of time. No, I mean, the people inviting us knew who we are. They enjoy our content and you can assume that to some extent they agree with it. Otherwise they wouldn't have invited us or they can, they wanted us inside the tent to have to have a wider debate, wider range of views. And so we were going to be able to present our views authentically. But I don't know what we were even expected to do. No one discussed it with me. And me and Aaron Mate, my colleague who's going to be on the panel with me, were wondering what was going to happen. Then we heard that there was some wider panel that we were going to be on with other people who didn't agree with us and that they were pulling out because, of course, no one will debate us in public face-to-face because... They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to get curb stomped. And I mean, they don't have the facts. The, the, the average U.S. foreign policy expert at the Atlantic Council, they never even have considered the other side of the debate, what Wyatt has detailed. Like that's completely foreign to them. And when they're confronted with it, they go into contortions. So they that's another factor in our disinvitation was that people were pulling out from some panel, but we don't even know what panel was planned. I mean, from an organizational standpoint, this was done in an extremely unprofessional manner. And uh, it's something I'm accustomed to from years and years of being deplatformed for my reporting on apartheid Israel, my reporting on the Syrian dirty war. Um, in, in so many cases, we dealt with... Um, deplatforming attempts. And the real goal is not necessarily to ban us per se. Like I'm allowed to have my website. We're still on YouTube. We're still picking up subscribers there. It's to isolate us from polite society and the mainstream discussion and paint us as some kind of conspiratorial pariahs. Right. Like don't invite him to the party. Like, oh, he's, he's one crazy. Of, he's one of those guys, That's right? That's what they did early on to Assange. It was like before they could nail him on some kind of espionage act related uh, violation. It was he is crazy. Uh, he's a, a sexist and he's a rapist. And it kept escalating until they just introduced the secret indictment because, I mean, the threat that he presented was so much more grave than anything we're doing. They right. said he was like smearing his poop on the walls. They said all types of. Well, that was the final, uh, you know, uh, attempt to brand him as a psycho and destroy his good name within. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the press could easily create a drumbeat for his release. And, and he was, yeah, the rapist. And then, of course, the rape charges are uh, that's that goes totally away and 20 is totally faked. And, um, you know, now, of course, you guys covering a lot of what's going on with the intelligence intelligence operations yeah. with MI6 and, of course, covering what happened, to the Crimean Bridge. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Kit Clarenberg on the show talking about, of course, that uh, the ties to the British government and now the grain, the grain attacks. So, of course, they don't want you talking about these things. And I don't see these stories being covered in the mainstream media anywhere. Well, we teed it up for the British press. I mean, we gave them the raw material to show the British public what British intelligence is doing in their name with their tax money in a foreign theater of conflict to escalate a potentially nuclear war by crossing deliberately crossing Russia's red lines. I mean, the, the attack on the Kerch Bridge was a deliberate attempt to provoke Russia. It was carried out at least overtly by the Ukrainian SBU security services, a suicide truck bomb attempt. But it, there are British fingerprints all over this. We at the Gray Zone, through Kit Clarenberg, 
obtained leaked documents from a cell of British military intelligence officials, including an advisor to the British military, uh, British defense ministry, of a blueprint for attacking that bridge. Um, the blueprint was put together in April. I interviewed the author of the blueprint. He all but acknowledged putting it together. And while the plan came together slightly differently than they had proposed, there was this postage stamp that the Ukrainian government had put out showing the Kerch Bridge exploding, which looked a lot like this blueprint. Yeah, yeah almost overnight. Published. Suddenly it's available at the post office in Ukraine. You can go and take your picture with it like a selfie. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a major story. We had like 100,000 hits on the site. I mean, everyone was reading it. And I would assume every uh, foreign correspondent who's interested in this conflict was reading it. And what did the British press do? Just completely ignore it. Amazing discipline from the British media to ignore this. And we've published so many leaks um, under the byline of Kit Clarenberg. I've shared the byline with him a few times. Leaks on the um, a violation of the Official Secrets Act by conservative party elements to manipulate the Brexit vote. Leaks on journalists uh, collaborating with the British security state, specifically Paul Mason, to um, smear and destroy the gray zone and other independent outlets and to destroy the whole Corbynite left in the UK. Uh, amazing stuff. And how did the British press cover it? They never would discuss the content. They would only say, well, this is the result we think of Russian hacking. <laughs> well, they made up an entirely new label on Twitter for the, the this may have been the result of hacked materials to apply specifically to one of your first exposés on Reuters, I believe. That was amazing. I mean, we got leaks showing that Bellingcat, Reuters, the Thomson Reuters Foundation and BBC Media Action, the charity arm of the BBC, were working with the British Foreign Office, which is the basically parent of the British MI6 security, secret security service, to um, infiltrate Russian media and infiltrate Russian media space to train Russian journalists to be pro-Western, et cetera. Basically, they were intelligence, acting as intelligence cutouts. I published on that and Twitter invented within hours an entirely new label so that anytime anyone shared my article, it said this may contain uh, material obtained through hacking. So the gamers on Twitter decided this is funny as hell. Like, let's just take this link and put like a gif of Alvin and the chipmunks getting head under it. And then it would say this material obtained through hacking. So the article, thanks to gamers just goofing around with that label, it went completely viral. It was bonkers. It shut down our site like three times because we were getting so much traffic that Twitter actually had to remove the label because they realized that they had enacted the Streisand effect on steroids. <laughs> I love that. I mean, this speaks to just how difficult it is. I mean, these big media companies through censorship, then not only that, then you have, of course, state, uh, you have governments that are actively colluding with these, uh, with the, with yeah. these big tech companies to do it. Um, I, you know, I want to talk about that because the intercept this past week uh, published a piece, uh, a piece, which was really just the tip of the iceberg that, and left a, a lot of pieces out of this story about, the DHS leaks, these sort of backdoor portals between major tech companies. We covered on the show that that really the reporting should have started two years ago. Dr. Shiva, whose lawsuit unfolded and uncovered all of this gateway pundit covering it. But the intercept then suddenly was put up there as well. They discovered this amazing story. They understood, but they left out huge parts of the story. Um, can you talk about that when you see it, it seems like part of a pattern where they'll release a little bit of information 
and it covers up the larger part of the story so that the media just kind of moves on from the story. What they really should have been talking about at The Intercept was the funding, like Pierre Omidyar, who is the backer of The Intercept and who also was simultaneously funding these, uh, according to the reports, these these operations, these playbooks between big tech companies. Right. Um, but that's left out of their story. The, and so do you see that often in your reporting where you, you there's so-called independent journalists but they're really controlled by deeper money, bigger money, and they don't get to tell the truth? Well, Pierre Omidyar's Luminate Foundation is an obvious intelligence cutout that's uh, running all kinds of operations against the main, quote unquote, competitors of the US, Russia and China. And we've seen The Intercept be transformed from its origins as this radical truth-telling outlet that was going to rely heavily on the Snowden leaks, the NSA leaks, to expose the national security state to essentially becoming an asset itself of the national security state. They just claimed to have obtained all of these leaks uh, from Russia. In other words, a CIA hack and dump operation. They published the Iran leaks, which um, was essentially used in many ways to justify the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. It was all about Iranian infiltration of Iraq and how Iran had done all these horrible things in Iraq under the watch of Soleimani. Where did they get that from? I assume another CIA hack and dump. Where are the Snowden leaks? Where are the Snowden files? They've disappeared. The Intercept is pushing uh, not only... Well, and the Snowden leaks, they own them, right? They own this. So they privatized them through Pierre Omidyar, this... Uh, billionaire oligarch who's very close to the Democratic Party, but also appears to be pretty, I mean, he funded uh, media operations around the Maidan in 2014 to support the US-backed coup in Ukraine and all across the, the world he's doing this. So we can assume that he's, you know, at least intelligence adjacent. And so it's all, it was always a suspect operation and the Snowden files were privatized and disappeared. Well, the WikiLeaks puts everything online for us to see. This is gone. I have no idea where these NSA files are. Only 3% ever showed up. The most disgusting thing, one of the most disgusting things the Intercept did was they uh, they ran, they waited for years until after, until it was no longer relevant to release one of these leaks showing that the Saudi royal family personally authorized an attack on Damascus airport by Jaysh al-Islam, the army of Islam, this fanatical militia that they controlled in Damascus. Um, at a time when, you know, in, in 2013, 2014, the West was denying that there were even these kinds of um, Islamist militias at all terrorizing the country. And they waited years and years, and then they gave it to Murtaza Hussein, who supported those militias, who was an open supporter of these Al-Qaeda-related militias and regime change in Syria, and he spun the whole story. So that's how the intercept is able to be used to control the narrative. Then finally, Glenn Greenwald turned on them when they refused to allow him to report on Hunter Biden's laptop um, because Betsy Reed, who makes a million dollars a year at the intercept to produce no content of her own, just happened to be a liberal and didn't want to help Trump. I mean, that's that's when like, you know, Twitter banned Trump and it was completely partisan and the whole mask just lifted. So we know what the intercept is now, but we've been calling it out for years. Yeah. Um, Wyatt, I wanted to get back to the Donbass here. When you're there covering that as a as a journalist, first of all, you're with Sputnik News when 
do they ever come to you and say, we want you to tell a story this way and we want you to have this narrative in a story? Or are you able to do what you want to do and be independent about your journalism? I have more editorial freedom with Sputnik than I think almost any U.S., especially corporate media uh, journalist would have. I haven't been asked or, you know, to to cover any particular event any particular way ever, really. I just, I get an opportunity. Sometimes they'll ask me to cover a particular topic, but I have more or less total editorial independence. When you're there in the Donbass, do you see any, do you see Associated Press reporters? Do you see BBC News reporters? Do you see um, Reuters reporters wearing helmets? You don't see any of those. You see a handful of Western journalists. I could count them probably on one hand. I think you and I know at least one or two of them. Eva Bartlett, for example. Right. I got to meet the morning after uh, my hotel was shelled. Um, there are almost no Western reporters. And I'll tell you why. Um, there was a moment that went viral on social media in which a French reporter went to Herson and... Uh, started describing live on air what the Ukrainians are doing to the civilian infrastructure. She said they're bombing hospitals. And just a couple seconds later, they just cut her feed completely. They said, oh, well, we're having connection difficulties. And that was the first and last report I've seen from a Western reporter in any of these areas where there are Russian troops. Um, none of the Western mainstream media outlets will touch it because they know that if they did go to Donetsk, go to the Donbass, there would be nothing else to cover but the reality that the people there have been living through and so they just don't send them i managed to find one al jazeera reporter but it was al jazeera arabic you know al jazeera arabic they'll be able to have the the freedom i suppose to report the reality to their audiences but al jazeera english no they won't send anybody so i mean and there are reporters who've been criminalized for being there Oh, there are reporters like Alina Lip who can't go back to Germany. They face three years in prison if they do. Uh, so many of us have been placed on... Simply for reporting from there, she's violated new German speech laws. Graham Phillips. Graham Phillips. Debanked, criminal. debanked as well. Yeah, I myself have... I'm permanently banned from PayPal. You know, I've been placed on Miratvoretz, which is the Ukrainian government's official or semi-official, depending on how you view it, uh, kill list, hit list. Uh, a dozen journalists who've been placed on this list have been murdered and then they're marked subsequently. Their profile uh, has big red letters placed over their face saying liquidated in Ukrainian. Um, Daria Dugina, the daughter of uh, Alexander Dugin, uh, the Russian philosopher, was recently murdered after mm -hmm. being placed on this list. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's used officially by border guards to control who can't can and can't come into the country. And it's been used in hundreds of court cases um, as evidence of ha someone having committed a crime. Just the fact that something is, li is, is listed on this website uh, is apparently considered evidence in Ukrainian court uh, sufficient enough to convict someone. So it's more or less an official hit list. Uh, one of the founders is a man named Anton Garashenko, who's a top advisor to the uh, Ukrainian Interior Ministry. Um, and there are no calls among mainstream media to have this taken down. So this is kind of the environment that people in Ukraine find themselves in. Um, and it's, you know, it has predictable consequences. You just, you don't cover things that you should. You cover them up. 
uh, you don't cover the perspective of the other side of the hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the Donbass who don't want to be a part of Ukraine, who view themselves as ethnically or culturally Russian, uh, who don't want to have to go through with all types of things that, that they described to me personally. I spoke to school teachers and principals who described having to teach since 2014 Holocaust revisionism. They had to teach that the Ukrainian insurgent army were liberators instead of murderers who killed hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles, uh, or they would have lost their job. Um, you don't get a chance to hear any of that, um, and it's all kind of covered up, hidden, um, and those of us who are telling the truth about it are marginalized or otherwise silenced. For the gray zone, where if you could wake up and have a dream about where the gray zone would be and how it would be received around the world, like what would your pie in the sky dream be? I mean, I know I have dreams about what this show can can connect people around the world and and be you know make them aware about topics and things that they might not be aware of. Where do you see the gray zone going, and what sort of mountain do you have to climb to get it there? Well, it's not about the gray zone; it's about the it's about the free flow of information and debate right in the us as in pretty much every supposed liberal democracy in the west the third rail is foreign policy or geopolitics and specifically how uh, power is projected into countries where uh, the west seeks regime change or more power you can't talk about it and everything we see in here in mainstream corporate media, whether it's the New York Times, CNN, BBC, or any of these networks, is determined by the state and specifically this um, military intelligence apparatus that forms the PR mechanism that the media, and, and where the media is simply just a liaison for delivering those messages to the public through these phony personalities that are increasingly discredited. So what we're trying to do is democratize information the same way WikiLeaks did, uh, providing the public with the real, the real story about what their governments and the, specifically the intelligence services and the military are doing in their name and presenting the other side of the, the story that, that Wyatt is telling of the people on the other side of the gun. Uh, whether it's going to Nicaragua and showing what happened in 2018 when people were terrorized in this Western Baku attempt that was presented as this, as this great popular revolution, uh, or going to Venezuela and showing how sanctions are affecting everyday people and how people are resisting them, or uh, giving voice to reporters who are going to the Donbass region to the other side of the gun, or providing a transparency with leaks and original reporting and making phone calls and getting in people's faces in Congress, we're just trying to democratize the flow of information around these issues that are deemed verboten to discuss within mainstream media. So for us, it's not about the gray zone, it's about the whole media opening up the discussion and giving people this information. Obviously they won't because they're afraid of democracy. Samuel Huntington published or co-authored a book in the early 70s the early 70s about called the crisis of democracy and he feared that after the 60s the public was learning too much about u.s war making and u.s foreign policy because of the way the vietnam war was covered and he presented prescriptions for de-democratizing american society and we are just living through the terminal phase of that period right now 
You know, it's uh, trying to bring this knowledge to people is so important. So uh, I want to thank you, Max. I want to thank you, Wyatt, for joining us here. I encourage our, our audience to go out and read the, the great reporting at the Gray Zone. Read what, Riot, uh, what Wyatt's producing and writing at Sputnik and other outlets as well. Um, and try to share this information with people who have been brainwashed and, uh, and, and told this narrative since they were, since they were babies basically by the Western media. So our thanks to you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us in studio and thanks for what you're doing here. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you guys. And thanks to all of you for uh, joining us on this conversation. We will see you next time. In this next interview, you'll hear the gray zones, Oscar Leon speak to Anahi Durand the former Minister of Women and Vulnerable People in the Peruvian government. Duran served under Peru's ex-president, Pedro Castillo, a school teacher and union leader turned politician who was just removed from power by parliament, placed in detention, and replaced with an unelected figure. With Castillo charged with rebellion and conspiracy, hundreds of thousands of Peruvians have taken to the streets, facing heavy repression as they protest for his release. In this exclusive interview, Duran tells the Gray Zone why the elite forces behind Castillo's ouster are acting in an undemocratic fashion and slams the treatment of the former Peruvian president. Take a listen. Peru is experiencing a political crisis that has been going on for several years. It has been dragging on for several years, from 2016 to this one. So far, we have had seven presidents, seven presidents in seven years, which is almost one per year. There has been a growing instability derived from the 2001 transition that, when Fujimori fell and the transitional government did not make the reforms that needed to happen, and that leaves a constitution with a quite hybrid regime between parliamentarism and presidentialism. That is one factor. And on the other factor is a long-excluded population who in 2021 installed a president close to them, such as Pedro Castillo, a peasant, rural teacher, etc., and who never had the acceptance of the elites, some elites who first invented fraud and then also did everything possible to remove him from power and eventually did, anti-democratically in combination with the judicial system, etc. And, well, they achieved their goal last week after an attempt by him to dissolve Congress. The forced departure of Pedro Castillo by Congress and the celebration of Congress once they ousted him has finally generated. It has meant popular outrage. Congress is the place where the right wing and the political class have entrenched themselves. This is something that was coming, especially since Congress is completely delegitimized. It barely has 6% of the citizen approval. People hate Congress because they feel that the worst of the Peruvian political class is concentrated there. The one that does business, the one that legislates for companies, the one that covers itself with parliamentary immunity. There is a congressman accused of rape, another accused of embezzlement. They have now removed the president, and I think this is beginning to unleash public outrage. Today, today we have had 20 deaths. We have almost 120 injured. We have five international airports taken over. There is a state of national emergency. A state of emergency is in effect. The only response that Miss Balarte has given has been repression, right? And as I said, it is a very deep crisis that hopefully the possibility of solving it is also taken, of resolving the roots of the problem.
Speaking about the forces behind each actor in this crisis, in the case of President Castillo, is popular support. Is it unrestricted or is it relative to what you express about Congress and its rejection as a symbol of power of the right and the power of the old political forces that everyday people are already fed up with? Yeah, please go ahead. Yes, yes. So, well, indeed, Pedro Castillo has maintained, despite all the brutal smear campaign from the media, the big media corporations were part of these groups that never accepted his triumph, that were also always conspiring to remove him from power. He has maintained a hard core of support, the popular support of almost 30% of the citizenry. Precisely that mobilized, more excluded rural indigenous citizenry that is now mobilizing the platform of the people is very specific. They want to close Congress. That is the first thing they want, to close Congress. Secondly, the freedom of Castillo. Not necessarily his restitution, but at least his freedom, because his detention is seen as arbitrary. The way in which he is being treated, the cruelty that is being applied to him, it is all real. And finally, that Congress calls for a referendum on a new constitution, which is a demand that these elites have systematically denied to the point that Congress passed an anti-referendum law. I mean, it is, it's incredible. It has been challenged in court. I think it will be taken to international courts because the right to a referendum is something basic in every democracy and Congress cannot annul it. No, and yet they did it, right? In fact, that is one of the issues that led the president to take the leap of confidence and try to force Congress. But hey, he didn't make it. It seems that at the moment the crisis is beyond, as we said in the beginning, beyond a crisis of legality. It is a crisis of power. No? President Castillo has not been charged. He's been investigated now. What the Peruvian Constitution say is that you have to be formally accused by Congress first in order for them to be able to take action against you. No? No. Of course, because right now there is no legality. In other words, with President Castillo, they have jumped all the fences of legality because he is a constitutional president. For the sake of argument, let's say that his dismissal is also recognized, even though it is a process that is being questioned. He did not resign. He was ousted, dismissed with the wrong constitutional figure. Even the presidential immunity privilege that assists him for over a year was denied. Presidents can't be investigated. They should go through a constitutional accusation in Congress first. In short, there are a series of procedures. And all this has been obliviated in two days. This constitutional immunity has been lifted and he is also subjected to an arbitrary preventative detention. So there is a situation of disrespect of disrespect for due process, which I think is currently adding to the discontent of the people who had their president removed, removed by an illegitimate and irresponsible Congress. The next question is why, in the sense that obviously this is a political and social crisis that Peru has been dragging for many years, and there are obviously many factors in play. But was there any action by President Castillo against a company, against any policy or capital? Was he trying to rein in certain sectors of the economy? What was the trigger for this crisis? There was no trigger. From the very beginning, they never accepted Castillo's triumph. You can see it. 
Because he is someone who is not from the political class that is represented in Congress, he is an indigenous person, an Indian or a peasant, who according to them could not be president to begin with. They called him a functional illiterate. They rejected him openly. They invented a fraud. The Peruvian right did not recognize Castillo's triumph. So it's incredible, but they invented a fraud by simply challenging indigenous votes, as I said, because of this class component, because of the privileged status that the Peruvian right always had. And once in government, of course, the president tried to make some some reforms, but after three months, they already had the first congressional motion to oust him. So it's not like they let him govern or deploy any policy or, as you say, do anything to provoke his ousting. To put it simply, they just never wanted him. The message is very clear. Never again should one of these people rule. No, the state is something the upper wealthy dominant classes own, right? And well, that's the result. And I think it is disastrous for democracy at this point in the 21st century. One last question. It seems to me that is a dead-end situation. Because if they open a constitutional assembly or open a new presidential election, it seems that popular support will not necessarily be on the side of the powerful people and big business that are represented by the political forces in Congress. I think they're going to have to give in to some extent. It is somewhat similar to the Chilean outbreak, let's say, in the demand and the massiveness of the protests, although, of course, they are not centered in Lima. It is different when they are outside the centers of power, the protests taken in the poorest peasant indigenous areas. But this Congress is going to have to give up something, right? At least the advancement of elections not to 2024, as announced by the president. At least the constituent referendum, a much fairer deal to Pedro Castillo. So I do believe that if they give up any of that, I very much doubt that only militarization will work. No, that's not the way. So let's see what happens. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Gray Zone at Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. On behalf of my colleagues, Anya Parampil and Aaron Mate, please check out more of our work at thegrayzone.com.